It's recently come to my attention that uh, people are actually listening to this show. So with that in mind, uh, I, I'd like to offer a shamelessly self-serving disclaimer. I've wanted to talk about this week's topic for a long time. Uh, for a while, I thought it would be an essay, uh, maybe an interview. Uh, but a while ago, when I started having the idea for a podcast, I thought, well, that'll be a perfect episode. Um, the topic of today's show is the utterly fucked up poetry book contest system. Uh, so it was uh, a very pleasant and inconvenient surprise when I won a poetry book contest this fall. Uh, I've decided exercising characteristically consistently poor judgment to go ahead and do this show anyway uh, because the poetry book contest system is really fucked up. But before doing that, I'd just like to say uh, David Yetzi, who chose my book this fall, is uh, an absolutely uh, honest, talented, and uh, accomplished man. I've already recommended his work on this show, so I won't dig back into that. Uh, but I have not yet recommended his beard, which is uh, really uh, outstanding. Uh, and uh, uh, ditto Rob Griffith, who's publishing the book. And uh, finally, also, also Alex Peppel, who published my first book and uh, runs Able Muse, as well as the delightfully uh, catty and incestuous and uh, really erudite and insightful formalist online poetry forum, Eratosphere. Uh, Alex is a prince among men. And with that, let's get to the uh, profoundly ill-advised show. Several years ago, I won a poetry prize. It, uh, it was not a huge deal poetry prize, but it, it was uh, exciting to me at the time. And I met some people who were excited for me. I, I took it very seriously. I had taken the uh, manuscript I submitted very seriously. And I, I thought I had uh, done a good job. I thought I'd, I'd written uh, something good, and it had been recognized for its value and uh, selected as the winner. Now, uh, several months after I won, I uh, was at a uh, writing conference, and it probably doesn't require any firsthand experience to guess that um, much of the uh, time spent at any writing conference is occupied with uh, just ruinous quantities of alcohol. Uh, this one was no different. Uh, I happened to uh, come into a room and meet the you know, the, the fairly well-known poet. I, I had certainly I had known of him uh, from from many years before. The fairly well-known poet who had who had chosen uh, my poetry for this. Prize. I was uh, excited to meet him. Uh, he did remember uh, my work, uh, and you know I was probably over eager for some kind of uh, additional validation. 
but he he didn't require much prompting. He as soon as he realized who, who I was, he leapt to tell me the story of the selection of my work, which which you know should have been thrilling to me, and you know initially was. He said, oh, I, 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 uh, I got the final selections and I, 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 I read through them and I, you know, I just found it so hard to pay attention and I found all this very boring and, uh, you know, I was halfway through yet another one of these and, and then I saw that uh, here was a poem that included the word semen. And I thought, well, gosh, when is the last time I, I, I saw semen in a poem? So I figured, hey, why the hell not give it to this guy? And uh, that, of course, was my semen poem. Um, and he told me this as if it were <laughs> some sort of good news. Uh, you know, I was initially a little um, stung uh, by the the uh, the realization that the the selection of my work had been basically a, uh, an arbitrary whim. But you know, on reflection, I I remembered that this really just confirmed my working theory of uh, uh, prizes and dessert, um, which is to say, uh, very seldom do the people who deserve a prize get it. And on the rare occasions when they do, again, I still think I did good work. I have a little pride in my output in poetry, but when the people who deserve a prize, actually get it. Um, my sort of iron rule is that they never get it because they deserve it. That their dessert of the prize is in fact a, a coincidence. Um, now, I should say I don't mean to make any specific accusations about any specific prizes recent or otherwise, but I do think that generally speaking, and maybe especially in poetry, where the stakes are relatively low and the criteria are uh, become ever more mystified, I think that if you are so lucky as to get something that you think that you deserve, then just be grateful that it worked out that way and don't think too hard about why things <laughs> turned up for you because chances are upon examination it's going to be some fucking coincidence and not uh, the angels finally smiling upon you and elevating you and uh, illuminating the the deep and innate virtue of your world work for the benefit of the world probably some guy just slipped on a fucking banana peel. I'm Matthew Buckley Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts, a podcast about poetry and other intractable problems. This is, I think, a pretty juicy episode that I've got for you today. But before we get into that, I just wanted to make a quick note. Uh, a few of you have written in with suggestions uh, or 
corrections, observations. There were some typos in the show notes to one of the episodes. And uh, one listener mentioned that he thought that uh, one of the reasons that um, regarding my uh, discussion of y'all in the Poetry Voice episode, he thought one of the reasons that that the word y'all might be gaining popularity among non-Southerners, apart from the popularity of rap music, uh, could simply be the grammatical convenience of a gender-neutral second-person plural in contrast to the conventional northern uh, you guys. Uh, I thought that was smart. I thought it made sense. I was glad to hear it. So I just want to encourage all of you, if you notice something that I get wrong or miss or, or something you wish that I would cover or someone you'd, you'd like to hear interviewed, please do write in and let me know. The email address is sleericketts at gmail.com. That's S-L-E-E-R-I-C-K-E-T-S at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And now let's get to the good part. Tonight, we're going to talk about poetry. That is poetry with an F. Uh, for those who are not familiar with the term, poetry.com was a website launched on April Fool's Day, 2004, uh, and it shut down a little over three years later in, um, on May 18th of 2007. Uh, In that time, it caused a pretty big stir in the uh, small and fussy poetry world. Uh, It was covered in Poets and Writers, uh, in the Boston Globe, in the Los Angeles Times, in the New York Times, uh, overseas in The Guardian. Uh, Janet Holmes of the Asada Press threatened to uh, sue the editor of the site, uh, the anonymous editor, it was an anonymously run site, um, threatened to sue him uh, and took action to try to get the site forcibly taken down. Uh, Ben Ramke was forced to step down as editor of the Contemporary Poetry Series at the University of Georgia as a result. Scott Cairns uh, was forced to step down as the editor of the Vassar Miller Prize Series. Matthew Zapruder said, quote, the people who run the site have consistently used fear-mongering and an accuse-first, ask-questions-later method and contribute to the very system of hierarchy and secrecy that they so object to. And Jory Graham, uh, who was the um, most uh, famous and perhaps most thorough victim of the site, or, or, or target, depending on how you... you, you see things. Uh, She referred to the website's tactics as equivalent to lynching. And uh, then she announced that she would never judge another contest in her life. And to my knowledge, she has not. Uh, So what was this little website founded by a Portland Community College librarian all about? Well, in order to understand poetry, you have to understand the uh, poetry book contest system. 
for a few decades now, um, and more and more as the years go by, in order to get a first book published, a first poetry collection published, um, except for a few, you know, flukish alternatives, it is uh, incre- and this is m- even more the case now than it was when poetry or when poetry was up. Uh, it is basically necessary to win a book contest. Uh, these are contests run by um, usually small presses. It's, um, you know, the, the major publishers publish a very, very small amount of poetry, but, you know, poetry really just doesn't sell. It just doesn't sell uh, unless you're talking about uh, Ruby Kaur or uh, maybe Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem. Um, for the most part, though, poetry is not a doesn't make for even a, a marginal business proposition. So it's small presses, uh, often university presses, or tiny independent presses that publish books of poems. And uh, these presses very often run annual book contests, which is to say that once a year, uh, dozens, sometimes hundreds, or even thousands of uh, aspiring poets, I was about to say young, but that is often not uh, even remotely accurate uh, in describing the entrance. So uh, dozens, hundreds of aspiring poets send in manuscripts of poetry collections along with a contest fee. Usually this is about 25, 35 bucks, sometimes a little lower, sometimes a little higher, but that, that, that almost all of them fall into that range. Um, one manuscript is selected as the winner. Usually the winner receives a a pretty nominal cash prize. And of course the the main reward is uh, getting uh, your book published. So um, this is obviously a pretty frustrating way to try to go about getting published. Uh, Now it, it is only more frustrating if it turns out that the judges of these prizes are in fact simply awarding them to their friends, their colleagues, their students, and in some cases even their spouses. And that in 2004 through 2007, or you know, especially in the very beginning of poetry's run, that is exactly what was fucking happening. That is exactly what was happening. And that was poetry's reason for being. uh, Sorry, I I keep saying poetry instead of poetry. And I suspect that I will continue to make that transposition. Uh, It's ridiculous, but sorry. Poetry.com's motto was exposing fraudulent contests, tracking the sycophants, naming names. And it's really the naming names part that I think got people so heated uh, because it, as you know, uh, I'm going to read a few articles written about poetry at the time, but as one of the, um, uh, one of the professors uh, interviewed notes, this is not really a secret. Everybody has always sort of known this. The scandal is specifically pointing out individual perpetrators, 
of this nepotism. Embarrassing people. Really, that was Foetry's big weapon because despite some of the um, founders, the, well, they, there was not just one person in charge. Uh, there were was a founder, but then there ended up being multiple editors and uh, Foetry also had an associated forum. So there were a lot of people who participated and uh, more than a couple called for criminal charges to be brought uh, against some of these poetry figures. Um, that was never really on the table. What was and what poetry excelled at was uh, publicly embarrassing people whose, whose careers were really uh, sort of a, a fabric of um, you know, tissue-thin uh, you know, art, artistic fancy and uh, you know, vague uh, uh, academic reputation above all. I mean, re reputation, prestige is really, that's the real currency in poetry because there is almost no other currency uh, available to people who uh, trade in poetry. So, um, to just to just to get as specific as possible um, about what how f the edit editors of poetry saw the poetry world and what they were after, I want to read two uh, selected paragraphs from their website. Uh, they were um, they <laughs> they were not and never have been and continue uh, as I'll get to later not to be especially concise, but I, I'm trying to excerpt as best I can. So here are a couple of choice paragraphs from uh, the original poetry.com. They refer to PoBiz, which should be pretty self-explanatory. It's a favorite term of theirs. Um, it is uh, always derogatory in referring to the po poetry business, PoBiz. So this is poetry.com. Ultimately, we believe that the PoBiz is foisting mediocre poetry upon poetry readers by monopolistic might, and that not only its practices, but its ideologies undermine the quality of the art form. We see the PoBiz as anti-literary in that it uses the currency of poetry to provide short-term benefits, monetary, career, fame, comfort, etc., to a privileged and underrepresentative elite at the expense of generating and disseminating literature of lasting worth for the culture as a whole. We think poetry should be a reflection of and addition to the entire culture, not simply a currency used by a tiny percentage of the population to obtain goods and status for themselves alone. So that, that's sort of the, their diagnosis of the problem. Um, th this is this will come back too. I think um, uh, Alan Cordell, which is the name of the the founder, is, he was remained anonymous for about a year, and then uh, after a a, a pretty um, uh, intense and uh, collaborative effort um, by Foetry's detractors, he was outed, um, uh, not by choice. Um, but uh, his name was Alan Cordell, and Cordell's um, vision of the poetry world, his, his wife, uh, uh, the poet Kathleen Halm, uh, had actually been a previous winner of one of the contests he most uh, famously attacked. 
there, there is no indication uh, that I've seen anywhere from any party that uh, in her case, the choice uh, was uh, influenced by any personal relationships. But um, his Cordell's understanding of the poetry world was not just that it was crooked, but that there were real prizes, real stakes um, for these choices. That is, that the the uh, the unjustly rewarded friends and lovers of these judges were receiving prizes, prestige, uh, positions, uh, teaching, uh, lecturing. Um, you know, entry into the reading circuit, that these people were, were really getting uh, sort of major careers out of uh, this crooked system of selection. And so it wasn't just that some people were getting their feelings hurt. It was that um, despite the flimsiness of poetry in, you know, our culture today, uh, the, the flimsy role of poetry, I should say, in our culture, the, the associated, the secondary um, uh, elements of this you know, uh, chosen life could, could actually be really significant. And uh, that in his view, the crookedness of these prizes really made the difference between you know, having and not having a viable, and in some cases, uh, a major prestigious career. The beneficiary of one of Jory Graham's more questionable selections uh, went on to uh, a, a position at Harvard. So, you know, these, these were not, um, this is not a penny any game in Cordell's view. Uh, I think that was maybe one of his first errors or, or, or at least, um, it, it, it's, it was less and less accurate as time went on. But I want to get to uh, the, the next paragraph from poetry.com uh, because this is where he really gets into uh, what they hope for, what they're after with all of this. We understand that any evaluation of artistic merit in the context of a poetry contest is largely a matter of the personal taste of the judge or judges. Poetry.com accepts this aesthetic taste as a valid ultimate criterion for judgment of manuscripts in poetry contests. What we would like to see is a contest that is sufficiently regulated and transparent so that it guarantees this ultimate criterion of judgment to all paying entrants. That is, we would like to see contests we would, that is, we would like contests to be assayable by each entrant based on this criterion so that an entrant is able to estimate on the basis of potential aesthetic compatibility between her, him, and the judge. And that is a just unfucking believably loaded parenthetical. That parenthetical is, in my opinion, actually the whole ballgame. As I'm going to repeat it one more time. Well, let me start from the beginning of the sentence so we can get the whole context. But this parenthetical is the dispositive, decisive question in this whole fucking mess. That is, we would like contests to be assayable by each entrant based on this criterion so that an entrant is able to estimate on the basis of potential aesthetic compatibility between her, him, and the judge, whether sending money to the contest is a worthwhile venture. 
the odds of winning any contest should be as estimable as possible. And that is uh, not uh, the correct use of the word estimable, or it is at best a, um, uh, a, a, an unusual application of that word. Um, he means here it should be as easy as possible to estimate whether you have a chance of winning a contest because you should know who is choosing the winner and on what basis that person is choosing the winner. Again, uh, that is um, that is a much taller order than one might expect. Um, I, I also want to read, um, and this is, oh, whew, I'll warn you, pretty brutal. <laughs> um, this is the poetry entry on Jory Graham. It's not that long, but it is um, effective. And it, it was effective, and it, it ends on a pretty damning note. Um, I'm, I have a lot more to say about this, but if, right now, for right now, I just want to read. This was what Foetry.com, you know, with, with little to no warning, posted publicly. Uh, they did this for many, many other poets um, as well. Uh, posted publicly as a, a, a reference for Drury Graham, for figures in the poetry world. So this is the Drury Graham entry. Uh, most of it is sort of begins with uh, uh, sentences lopped off after the implied subject, Jory Graham. Jory Graham taught at Iowa Writers Workshop and is now at Harvard. Selected her student, Joshua Clover, as winner of the Walt Whitman Award, which has since changed its guidelines. Selected her student, Michelle Glazer, as winner of the Associated Writing Program Award Program's Award Series in Poetry in 1997, which prompted AWP to change its guidelines. Glazer, who studied with Graham at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, was awarded the Iowa Poetry Prize for her second book. Again, the implied Drury Graham chose her student, Jeffrey Nutter, as winner of the Colorado Prize in 1999. Drury Graham picked Iowa graduate James McCorkle for the American Poetry Review slash Honickman First Book Prize in Poetry, published by Copper Canyon Press. Jory Graham awarded the 2004 Barnard Women Poets Prize to her former student, Tessa Rumsey, whose first book was selected for the Georgia Contemporary Poetry Series by Jory's ex, James Galvin. <clears throat> Quote, It's hard to imagine how one could be a better teacher of poetry than she is, says Mark Levine a former student who now teaches at, at Iowa himself. He must have been a very good student, as Graham picked his first book for the National Poetry Series in 1992. Jory Graham presented her husband-slash-Harvard colleague, Peter Sachs, with the Georgia Contemporary Poetry Series prize for his book. He was not, <laughs> not that it matters that much, but he was not actually her husband at the time. Uh, he, he was uh, soon to be her husband, but... Um, that is hardly uh, exculpatory. A statement, this is the, the, the closing and, and I think damning note on the Drury Graham entry. A statement adopted in competitions to prevent judges from selecting students is often referred to as the Drury Graham rule. Uh, and this was, you know, the, uh, <laughs> this is why Drury Graham doesn't judge poetry contests anymore. Um, and uh, good God, why would she want to? I uh, 
I want to offer a little bit of a defense of Graham um, later. First of all, I, I just want to give you a slightly more thorough sense of how uh, poetry affected the poetry world when it came out. So um, there is a, an especially histrionic <laughs> Uh, piece by uh, Stephanie Burt in the July 18th, 2004 edition of the Boston Globe. Uh, and this is, it is presented as uh, a piece of straight journalism. Boy, it, it's a, it's hard to read it as anything but a, um, an attack on poetry. Here's the headline, Poetry World Shocker, a muckraking website aims to blow the lid off the cozy practices of contemporary poetry. And here's the article. Uh, I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs. It is. Uh, it goes on, and um, uh, a lot of it is is um, a little little redundant. But uh, here's the beginning. Does poetry need muckrakers? The secretive operators of the website Foetry, a self-described American poetry watchdog, certainly think so. They promise, from behind a cloak of anonymity, to uncover scandals among the publishers of contemporary poetry, dishing dirt on fraudulent contests, as their homepage has it, tracking the sycophants, naming the names, and generally cleaning house. The site has poets talking. Since its launch on April 1st, Poetry has racked up almost 600 comments and questions from the laudatory to the outraged, at one point receiving a thousand page views in a single day, quite a crowd for gossip about new verse. These numbers may read a little differently now than they did in 2004. This was, um, though, uh, you know, this article came out just a couple months after the website um, uh, debuted. Uh, continuing on. The site has prompted vitriol elsewhere in cyberspace on various blogs and message boards. Poet and publisher Janet Holmes of Asada Press in Boise calls it repellent. California poet and blogger Eileen Tabios describes poetry as the dark side of the poetry world, while poet, critic, and publisher Kevin Walzer of Word Tech Communications in Cincinnati complains that these guys see conspiracies everywhere and it's causing needless harm. Uh, I'll go down. There's, there's another piece in the Los Angeles Times. Um, so these these next two pieces were published a year later. This was after Alan Cordell had been exposed as the founder of poet, uh, poetry. Uh, he he and his partners did keep the site running for another couple of years. But as you'll uh, as we'll as we'll hear in the the second of these uh, or the third of these. Um, the, the, the website may have already served its purpose. So this is from uh, Website Upsets Poetry World, Librarians, Poetry, Challenges, Validity of Competitions by Tomas Alex Tisson in the Los Angeles Times on July 17th, 2005. Um, I'm going to skip down to the middle. He, he, he begins by sort of... Uh, recapitulating Cordell's claim about how big a deal contests are and, and how they, it's, um, he calls uh, winning a contest one of, one of the only sure tickets to continuing life as a poet, uh, which sees that already is, a, is an overstatement. Um, there's no, no sure tickets, and I, and I don't think even then there were any. But let's skip down to a little further on. Um, uh, he says, as word spread, more people logged on to poetry. 
which Cordell says recorded more than 5,000 hits a day at one point. Among those who logged on or took part in discussions were some of the most respected bards in the land. Oof, man, don't say bards. Just bard is a word that should apply if to anyone, then only to the one. Uh, ah, it's just painful. Among those who logged on or took part in discussions were some of the most respected bards in the land, including former Guggenheim fellow and Black Mountain poet Robert Creeley, Jory Graham, and National Endowment for the Arts chairman Dana Joya. Uh, Dana Joya, by, by the way, uh, called Cordell uh, simply to congratulate him and to <laughs> wish him Godspeed. Um, uh, Joya was a fan. Poetry, um, as a quote, confirms what anyone involved in poetry over the past 30 years has known for a long, long time, says Neil Bowers, poet and distinguished professor of English at Iowa State University. This is Bowers again. Poetry contests are rigged. The world of poetry, Bowers says, is all about hustle and connection. Uh, truer words were never spoke. Um, and, uh, and then here's uh, another little a bit. Poet and critic William Logan, an English professor at the University of Florida, says, The facts at poetry are mostly right, the tone mostly shrill. Reading it, I feel caught between being grateful and being annoyed. Uh, I, think, I think Logan uh, hit, hit, hits the nail really on the head. Um, uh, going back over this story, I couldn't. Um, I couldn't help but be reminded of the recent GameStop uh, scandal, um, in which uh, sort of trollish, irritating, and in some cases, you know, really not not at all admirable uh, uh, amateurs um, just delivered a, a absolutely satisfying, <laughs> satisfying blow. Uh, and, you know, in public humiliation on top of it to um, some just thoroughly despicable uh, um, elite puppet masters. And, you know, I, it, it's hard to, one feels no sympathy for the hedge fund managers in that case, uh, but one isn't especially charmed by the, the, the GameStop Reddit guys either. And, and I think Foetry uh, was another version of the story. Um, they uh, they embarrassed some people who were, you know, for the most part in, in need of a little embarrassment. And, and yet they were themselves sort of nasty and resentful and unpleasant. Um, this is probably the most sober of the, uh, the, the articles on poetry that I, I found from the time. This is just a little, a little bit from uh, The Contester. Who's Doing What to Keep Them Clean by Kevin Larimer. Uh, and this was in Poets and Writers in the July-August 2005 edition. Like it or not, poetry got people talking about some important issues in response to the increasingly common discussions among the more than 450 members of the Council of Literary Magazines and Presses Executive Director Jeffrey Leppendorf decided to schedule a series of formal symposia with writers, editors, and publishers in order to establish a set of guidelines for contests, including a code of ethics, which he hopes to publish on the CLMP website this fall. Uh, that's uh, Those symposia did go ahead, and um, 
the CLMP did put out some guidelines. Uh, e even beyond that, though, I think the the public fuss and embarrassment had been uh, bright, hot, and loud enough that, uh, especially as new poetry book contests emerged, it became increasingly the the norm that one uh, you know announce the judge ahead of time and explicitly prohibit uh, the kind of nepotism that had that had taken place before. So um, in that sense, you know, poetry uh, really got its wish. The, the Jory Graham brand of, uh, you know, uh, poetry contest squirreliness um, is is deeply out of favor and in most cases explicitly prohibited today. That is not, uh, at any rate, the way in which poetry book contests are squirrely for the most part anymore. Uh, but I also think this doesn't quite solve the problem they got their wish, and yet, what has the result been? Well, you know, you would expect that if the problem were simply that, you know, rather than the best, the best manuscripts being chosen, there were simply the manuscripts of those who knew the judges. You you would expect that once that once that option was eliminated, once the judges you know had to choose blind or choose only among you know writers they didn't know, you'd expect that uh, if all of Cordell's, if all of Cordell's assessments of the poetry world were accurate, you would expect then that book contest winning books would suddenly become much better. And I don't think anybody would argue that they have. The book contests are more transparent than before, and I think that's good, but the books aren't really much better. And I don't know that I would say they're being chosen for any more worthwhile reasons. Um, and this is where I, I want to offer a little bit of a defense of Jory Graham. Now, she, she defended herself in a couple of um, ways. Uh, she said, for one thing, that she has taught a lot of fucking people. So, you know, if you get on her case every time she chooses a student, it, she's been a teacher for decades. As to my knowledge, she's still a teacher. So her former students are you no know, number in the thousands, and the poetry world is small. And, you know, for, for, for that matter, uh, if you, you could use the, um, the argument that uh, uh, Rebecca Wolf used um, when she was challenged, she was the... the uh, founder of Fence Magazine, she was challenged about the preponderance of uh, um, uh, Iowa grads who appeared in the pages of Fence. And her, you know, very simple, um, if not necessarily uh, watertight um, explanation was that the preponderance of Iowans, the preponderance of Iowans proves only 
that those of us who judge these contests are in some kind of agreement with those who make the decisions about who goes to the Iowa Writers' Workshop. That is, uh, ostensibly the Iowa Writers' Workshop is where the best poets go, and we are interested in publishing the best poets, and so a lot of the names on those two lists are going to overlap. Um, Drury Graham might say that she's taught in some of the best She's taught some of the best students at some of the best schools, and so when she is choosing winners, uh, not only because she has a lot of students, but because her students um, uh, are overrepresented among the best of poets, she might argue uh, it's only reasonable that her students should often be the winners of these prizes, even when she is the one judging. Um, uh, another I think very reasonable defense she made of herself was that she didn't break any rules. These choices, these selections were not against the rules at the time. It was sort of, you know, if anything, it was sort of the done thing. Now, there were at least a couple of cases in which she seemed to take efforts to conceal her choice, or she, she got Ben Ramke, for example, to, to take the credit for choosing Peter Sachs, uh, who, who later she went on to marry, which is, you know, suggests at least that she knew it wouldn't look great. But, you know, uh, the other way of looking at the Drury Graham rule is that it, um, she didn't break it because it, it didn't exist until afterward. So uh, I, I think that there is... Um, there is another sort of subtler defense that I could offer of her. And, and this is, so in the case of the Peter Sachs, who, you know, she gave him, she awarded him the prize for the contemporary uh, poetry series. Um, he went on to be her colleague and uh, eventually husband um, up in uh, Cambridge. So not only was he an intimate, of Graham's, but he didn't even enter the contest. The story goes that she actually had Rampke solicit Sachs's manuscript and then chose it. Now, um, the other half of the scandal in that particular case, and I think the maybe the, the, the best reason for Rampke having to step down from his post. Um, Rampke, by the way, very interesting poet. Uh, hands down the worst poetry reader I've ever heard, ever. Amazing. Not poetry voice, by the way, just a high, reedy, uh, limping voice that just uh, seemed to drift around the room like a stunned animal aimlessly with no sense of direction or purpose or, or even an emotional connection to the subject matter. But again, the on the page, the poems are pretty interesting. But I think the, 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 the biggest scandal in that story was not that Graham chose her, you know, soon-to-be husband. Uh, it was that Ramke admitted that at least half of the submissions were never read at all. And, and that is a big deal, I think, and, and even a big deal, all things considered. 
because the solicited entry is is you know has a little bit of a tradition to it. You know, um, John Ashbery was uh, an early and very notable winner of the Yale Younger Poets Prize. Um, he didn't enter the Yale Younger Poets Prize. Auden was judging it. Auden judged it for for a number of years. He also selected Adrian Rich uh, another year, but um, Auden was judging it that year. He had read the entries and he did not like them. Uh, he was then uh, on Fire Island and he ran into John Ashbery, had a conversation with him, got along with him. I think they talked about poetry uh, and he solicited Ashbery's manuscript and then awarded it the prize. Um, this is not to say that Ashbery didn't deserve it, uh, but it is to say that there is a... So in, as, uh, as Larimer points out, in 1997, W.S. Merwin announced that he had been chosen as the, the judge of the Yale Younger Poets Prize. Um, usually it's a two-year term, sometimes longer. Uh, but he was, he was the judge in 1997, and his announcement was, there will be no winner. I, I read no manuscripts that I thought were deserving. And uh, people, if, if there's anything that uh, aspiring poets hate more than seeing uh, somebody's boyfriend win a prize. It is uh, seeing nobody win that prize. <laughs> People fucking hate that. And so uh, it is perhaps understandable if you, you know, Graham had read all of these entries and found them all wanting, but decided that she wanted to give the prize to somebody who wrote good poetry then she solicited work. Now, um, it is uh, that's not what happened in this case because Ramke said half the half the entries weren't um, weren't uh, read at all. But there were other cases in which uh, Graham solicited work, and I think that's a you know at least a a reasonable, if not um, thoroughly satisfying explanation. Uh, but it's it, I think that. Uh, that question of a deserving winner or, or good poetry really is, um, as I said, it's sort of at the at the heart of the matter. Again, that that parenthetical that Cordell took so for granted uh, was on the basis of potential aesthetic compatibility between her him and the judge. Uh, the reason it is so hard for judges to choose correctly, wisely, well books to win these prizes is that there is almost no agreement on what makes a good poem. Almost none. On top of that, there are just staggering, staggering numbers of poets writing today. I'm not among those who uh, complain that, you know, back in the old days, poetry was good and now it's bad. You know, there's, there's always been bad poetry and, and the majority of poetry has always been bad. But um, as has been celebrated in some cases, um, uh, there is more poetry today than ever. And, and, and even beyond, uh, the, you know, the proportional terms, even beyond just the growth in population, which is astronomical, um, there are more people writing poetry today. 
and more people writing poetry with a with less and less sense even of what would be anybody's idea of a good poem. Um, and so I think it is increasingly common that in so far as one develops any sense of what makes for a good poem, what makes a poem pleasing or virtuous, however you'd like to determine it, that sensibility, that uh, aesthetic, as Cordell puts it, that um, uh, those grounds for judgment tend to be developed uh, in a circle of intimates, which then leads to the you know fairly predictable conclusion that when one looks out at the poetry world and seeks work of value, one tends to find it mostly among the intimates with whom one developed one's whole sense of what makes poetry good to begin with. Uh, it's a problem. And it's why I think, you know, I have never been the final judge of any poetry prize and uh, God willing, I never will be because it is, it's, it is a, uh, another thing Graham said at the time was that it, that is a thankless fucking job. It is not a fun job. And uh, you make one person tops. Best case scenario, you make one person very happy. And a lot of other people hate your fucking guts. So I've never been in that position. I've never been the final judge of a poetry contest. But I have, in, in several other cases, been a, you know, a preliminary reader, an intermediary reader, a, you know, a, somewhere along the way making, you know, winnowing uh, things down uh, for the final judge. And, you know, my observation has been that almost every contest is conducted in, in, in pretty good faith, but uh, there are you know, two big problems. One is that there's just too much stuff. There's too much. And so there's a kind of a clerical uh, fatigue and overload, either, you know, um, either just in the, you know, the filing system, uh, computerized or otherwise, um, or uh, you know, personally, individually, it is uh, exhausting to read such an enormous bulk of poetry, and it doesn't make one better at reading. Uh, and the same is true for slush piles generally. But by the way, and this is a um, this is a, a, a little bit of a digression, but uh, slush pile is not a derogatory term. There's this weird little micro fad of editors lately. Um, uh, editors and agents, I've noticed in, uh, in more fiction circles. Uh, taking a stand and saying, I don't use the word slush pile because I don't, I don't, you know, I have too much respect for the writers who submit to use a term like that. Fucking what does that mean? That's ridiculous. They, it is a slush pile. Uh, anyone who's read, uh, read, read from a slush pile knows what it is. We all submit to them. They're, they're, they're slush piles. That's just a descriptive term of the big, uh, slushy, slippery heap of uh, virtual or physical papers from lots of people uh, from whom you did not solicit work, but who would like your eye on their work nonetheless. Um, uh, just this, this nonsense about I, and not using the word slush pile uh, is not, uh, I'm not impressed and, uh, and I don't believe for a second that you have uh, any special respect for the 
writers who contribute to those slush piles, which is what they're fucking called. But, you know, this is the same problem uh, as judging contests. And uh, beyond that, because there's, you know, there's so, there's so many submissions and they're, you know, you could say they're so bad, but you could also say they're uh, so hard to assess at all because nobody, no, no three people in poetry share a ruler on this stuff. Um, uh, but because, you know, because of this bulk and because of this fatigue, you know, even if say manuscripts are <laughs> submitted blind, uh, there's seldom enough manpower to, you know, for the individual, you know, personnel to remain uh, you know, consistently blind in a way that would lead to a sort of a, you know, a perfect theoretical, um, r rigorously, you know, impersonal assessment of content. Uh, you know, the reality is that you you probably got your manuscript chosen because you happen to include the word semen or because somebody had a, a good lunch or, uh, you know, because somebody else got bored and, uh, and, and, you know, tossed the rest of the stack early that day. Um, so, you know, the, we live in a world that is less corrupt by poetry standards, but uh, I'm not sure. And this is something I, th you know, I respect about Cordell and, and company is that they, they did from the beginning emphasize their, um, their ultimate commitment to the art form, what they, what they were most concerned about, and what they were most concerned that, that what they called poetry harmed, was poetry itself. Um, and you know, poetry uh, was retired in uh, 2007, but it, uh, it, there were a couple of attempts to resuscitate some version of it. Uh, Post Poetry was a website for a little while. There, there is now a, um, a new incarnation of the poetry uh, crowds online uh, uh, voice. Um, and that is uh, a blog called Scariot, which is named after the Poetry Foundation's utterly dreary and tedious and useless blog, Harriet. Um, so Scariot is, uh, um, fine there, um, their about page. Scariot is a poetry and culture blog of original poems and original provocative essays, well known for its poetry's Hot 100, March Madness Tournament, virtual poetry competition, blah, blah, blah. Boy, they God, they just, they go on. The, the, the guys don't like to edit. Um, long sentences, long paragraphs, long uh, articles. God damn, their about page just, I forgot about this. It goes on for fucking ever. So, um, Scariot is full of a lot of bad writing, but it's also got some some charm to it, and uh, certainly has some of the the old uh, uh, bite and spleen of the the classic poetry days. Um, but it seems maybe a little more than you know. Poetry was um, was a big fucking bullseye on the poetry world, and Scariot. Uh, um, filled with terrible poetry as it is. Um, poetry, oh, by the way, uh, I, I say this is almost exclusively uh, poetry. It's se seemingly, maybe, maybe I'm incorrect here, but seemingly it is poetry by the editors um, who are 
enthusiastic and, and bad. Um, but it seems to be a website that is uh, that, that is concerned more with poetry than with the poetry world. And I was um, I was charmed. Uh, they their their poetry hot one hundred is this sort of it's almost like the you know the Time magazines you know influential people. It's a list of a hundred poets who are hot for a variety of reasons. Clearly, uh, not all of the same um, uh, polarity. Uh, some some are are um, beloved of uh, Scariot editors, and some are are decidedly not. Uh, I was I was I was pleased to see. Uh, my my friend Alan Shapiro, the the really great and and uh, underrated poet Alan Shapiro, uh, made the Hot 100 at Scariot this year. That was nice. But e- even even um, more uh, heartening than that, they they included another list of a hundred. This was a list of a, the hundred best lines of the past year, best poetry lines of the past year, um, and. And these seem to be sincere choices. Um, uh, A.E. Stallings, uh, somewhat unsurprisingly, got the number one spot, if I recall. Um, I think, oh, shit, I may be wrong. I think that's true. I think she got the number one spot. She was either one or two. Um, but also on the list was a line by Jory Graham, which you know, which confirms me that I, th- I think that, that Cordell and company were genuine in... Uh, their professed devotion to poetry above all. Um, that uh, It is not, for them at least, and this is maybe a, a, a demonstration of their, um, their rejection to the death of nepotism and, and all of its um, kind. Um, but it was, uh, it, was a little, it was a little heartwarming for me to see uh, at any rate. I want to I want to close this sort of long, um, somewhat gloomy look at the poetry world with a uh, on a slightly lighter note, though maybe with the same uh, grim moral to it. So I I mentioned uh, last week um, the development of a curious. Uh, a subspecies of YouTube video. Um, this was ASMR uh, in, in uh, last week's show. Uh, this week, I have been thinking about another uh, sort of minor variety of YouTube video, and this is the reaction video. Um, that is a video the the subject of which is not the original song, show, image, work of art, or you know, live you know, uh, uh, footage of real events. The, the subject is not the original subject that gave the, the occasion for the video. It is the reaction to that subject. Um, so, you know, I know there's a, a popular channel that shows uh, young children reacting to classic uh, rock songs. Um, there are certainly plenty of uh, you know jump scare reaction videos. Um, uh, parents love to uh, um, film and distribute you know always slightly exploitative feeling 
videos of their children uh, responding with delight to the um, uh, the the sudden presentation of uh, usually um, some sort of awful uh, Disney product. Uh, but the the reaction video that's been on my mind uh, this week is to a an amateur rap video. So this is um, here. Uh, the, the, the video is, list, is, is listed on YouTube as Rappers React to Rich Brian featuring Ghostface Killa. So um, this was a, 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 a little amateur video shot by uh, a few you know, suburban teenagers in Indonesia. It was a 16-year-old amateur rapper um, who uh, had a had a different name at the time that caused a little bit of uh, uh, fuss afterward. And um, so he, he currently goes by Rich Brian, but um, he put out this little video um, for his song called Dat Stick. And then uh, this is not that video. This is a video of a bunch of established rappers, including Ghostface Killa, Cameron, Designer, uh, Flatbush Zombies, Gold Link. Um, it is a video of these established rappers reacting to Rich Brian's video. Now, Rich Brian is uh, scrawny and uh, sort of dopey looking. And in the video, he wears a, a pink, you know, buttoned up, uh, polo shirt with khaki shorts and a Reebok fanny pack. Uh, he is um, uh, he is not intimidating to look at, and his dance style is uh, probably could be best be described as inadvertently comical. Um, uh, but what is delightful about this video and I really I recommend it I'll put a link to it in the show notes what's delightful about it is that uh, the rappers sort of you know smirk at his silly appearance and uh, and you know in some cases kind of wonder aloud why they're watching this this goofy scrawny you know Indonesian kid really young young kid uh, up until the moment when he opens his fucking mouth. And as soon as he does, he delivers a breathtaking stream of just brutal, fluent, dazzling, undeniable gangster rap. Um, uh, as one of the rappers remarks, uh, this is the hardest rapper of all time. He uses another word in place of rapper, but it is absolutely impressive. And it's immediately apparent to the rappers. Now, they may make fun of how he looks. In most cases, they actually you know, embrace his you know, slightly incongruous appearance. Um, uh, but whether or not you like gangster rap, whether or not that is a a subgenre of this art form that interests you. Um, what is clear is that he can do it. He's really good at it. It's clear to all of them. They're not even necessarily rappers who all practice 
the heart form in the same way as each other, but it is clear to all of them that he knows what he's doing, that he can do this thing. It's a really fun video to watch. I, I do recommend it. Um, and it's a catchy song, uh, Dat's Dick. It's a, it is a, it's a very short, very snappy little um, classic gangster rap song. I mean, uh, very, very impressive. Um, but what made me a little sad <laughs> uh, thinking about this video recently uh, is the realization that you could never do a video like this for poetry, not just because poetry is not the poetry we're talking about, I guess, is not a purely performative medium. Um, the, the, the performance of rap, the flow, is a, a, a major part of what makes rap work or not. Um, for spoken word poetry, sure, you could do a, a video like this. Um, uh, but for poetry that is meant to survive even without the help of performance. It's not that you can't perform you know, sort of serious, I hate distinctions like literary, but you know, it's not that you couldn't perform serious literary poetry in a charming or uh, uh, stirring way. It's just that part of what defines the endeavor is that the work be able to survive even without the help of that performance. And that, uh, that's something you couldn't, you, you could not put together a collection of poets, even among the same little sub sub category of contemporary poetry. You couldn't find five poets, sit them down and present, present them with a poem and, uh, and get this kind of immediate recognition, this immediate consensus, not necessarily that it's the best, not necessarily that, that every question of it is, uh, is, is resolved, but simply that, oh, obviously this is the real deal. Because in poetry, nobody knows what the real deal is anymore. It's just, it's just not part of the conversation. Um, but, uh, this has been a long, uh, a long um, segment, and I think we've uh, we've talked enough about the bad news. So let's skip now to a tiny bit of farewell good news before we call this show a show for the week. I mentioned the slush pile earlier. And uh, I, th I thought I ought to say, since it's such a rare experience, that uh, I, I, I still read a, a slush pile uh, today. Um, and this week, I, I, I found something, you know, it, it's just it's pretty unusual to find something from someone you've never heard of. It's not a solicitation or a recommendation, but just just a, a, you know, a submission in the pile, so to speak. So this is all email. Uh, but I, I read one out of the blue from a woman I'd never heard of, and it was really good. Uh, I don't do not at all my kind of poetry. Not uh, it was just very evident that uh, she knew what she was doing. That it was um, it was impressive. But uh, slush piles so seldom provide occasion for 
joy. And this was uh, this was a good one. It's a good week for the slush pile. But that's not the poem I'm going to share with you. Now, this is a very, very old poem. This is Fragment 16 from Sappho. Uh, it's been translated many times um, by some terrific poets. Uh, this is not the best known or the most elegant or skillful or glamorous translation, uh, but it is my personal favorite. Um, this is the translation by Sherrod Santos, uh, who was one of the poets uh, publicly named and shamed by uh, Alan Cordell. So um, uh, perhaps appropriate to today's episode, but uh, he uh, translates this into you know fairly prosy lines, um, and he gives it the provisional title to Anactoria because it is a love poem to a woman or a girl named Anactoria. Santos' uh, translation to Anactoria appeared in the volume Greek Lyric Poetry, a new translation uh, from. Norton, uh, and that was published in 2005. Uh, there's one word I, I think I maybe I ought to define just in case it's not familiar. Uh, at the very end, um, he uses the, the word hoplites. Hoplite. Uh, hoplite is a heavily armed uh, ancient Greek foot soldier. So that's all he's talking about. It's all she's talking about, I should say. Uh, all right, I'm, I'm going to read it and talk maybe for a moment about it and then maybe read it again because, uh, like most of the poems I read on here, it is pretty short. So this is Fragment 16 by Sappho to Anactoria. Some men say it's the sight of ramparts fronted by cavalry. Others that it's a field of foot soldiers closing ranks. Still others claim that the heart thrills to no spectacle more than a fleet of warships churning the wine-dark waters white. I say, instead, the presence of what you love is best. This is easy enough to understand. Even the far-famed, milk-skinned Helen abandoned a worthy husband and, without one thought for child or doting parents, stole away in a deep-sea ship with the destroyer of Troy. And now that you are gone, Anactoria, I know that power. No, deep down, I would rather see your bare feet on these flagstones, your face reflected in a looking-glass, then I would watch the man-killing chariots of Lydia or the sun-enameled armor of the hoplites in battle. So the poem takes the form of a, a kind of an argument. Um, there, there is a word for this particular rhetorical form. Um, the word is priamel or priamel. Um, uh, <laughs> 
primal is a word that uh, not only have I never heard a human being utter in conversation, but uh, I have barely ever seen it written down in print. Um, it, it's just not very common in English. I think it was originally a German term. German classicists came up with it, but uh, it is, uh, it's a term for a simple rhetorical structure uh, whereby a set of alternatives is presented uh, with all options being uh, false or, or not preferred up until the last one. So um, not this, not this, but this. And this is, uh, this is the structure that Sappho uses here. She says, some men say that it's this site, some men say it's that site, some men say it's another site. I say it's the one you love. So uh, site here is not, um, this isn't a trivial question. This question of what, you know, what, uh, what, to what site does the heart thrill most? It's not a trivial question because when she's writing this poem, most of these sites she's describing are, are not at all easily accessible. You know, Aristotle, at the beginning of the Poetics, has this little remark about how it's, it's funny that uh, we take delight in a really accurate drawing of a lion. If, you, if you're presented with a really, uh, really true to life, finely rendered drawing of a lion, it's, uh, it, it's really pleasing to see where we feel really gratified by the resemblance. And yet, if uh, a, an actual lion were close enough for you to see it that finely in that much detail, you would run screaming out of the room. Uh, and the kinds of things that she's describing, the sight of battle, the sight, you know, the sight of the water getting churned to a froth by the oars of the warships, uh, as you know, and you see the water turning that color because the warship is moving fast enough to uh, to come ram your ship and punch a hole in it and sink it. Uh, this is these are rare sights. You know, it's that uh, that third little stanza where she describes Anactoria, or at least names these little uh, fragments of the woman's image. Bare feet on the flagstones, her face reflected in the looking glass. These are the humblest and simplest images in the poem. Uh, even the, the reference to Helen is, uh, is, is has these piled on uh, hyphen. It's far famed, milk skinned. Um, Anactoria, the beloved, in this poem is the the simplest, humblest, least uh, outwardly impressive sight named. Um, and that's part of what I find charming about this poem and about this translation, because it's very plain spoken in its construction, even though the diction and specifically the, the images, the nouns in the poem, the noun phrases, uh, are often occur in a high register or with rather unusual uh, or elaborate uh, names, the 
sun-enameled armor of the hoplites in battle, the fleet of warships churning the wine-dark waters white, the sight of ramparts fronted by cavalry. Uh, the, the things in this poem are rare and precious and terrifying and exciting, but the logic of the poem is very simple. And uh, even though there is a kind of hyperbole that she offers in saying this very simple and very ordinary experience, you know, you can see bare feet on flagstones any day. You can see a face in a looking glass any day. You can't see these other things any day. And some of us never see them at all if we're living thousands of years ago when to see them means to be there. Uh, there is in her hyperbole even a kind of humility. This is all I want. It is not that it is, you know, the, the sight of Anactoria, the sight of a, uh, a bare feet on flagstones or a face in a looking glass is not intrinsically exciting. It's not universally exciting. It's not special or thrilling to everyone but it is thrilling to Sappho. It is just because she is specifically the person she is uh, that Sappho has this response. Um, and maybe that's, that's part of what I really enjoy about this translation. There's um, certainly he does nothing to preserve the meter. Uh, I can't say what he does to preserve uh, Sappho's um, syntax uh, or, or any of the I don't even know exactly how precise the um, the denotative translation is, though. Uh, you know, having read a, a number of others, I, I think it's fairly accurate. But the the humility of the argument, I think, is part of what I find really pleasing about this poem. I'm going to read it through one more time, and then uh, close out the show. This is uh, fragment 16 by Sappho uh, to Anactoria. Translated by Sherrod Santos. Some men say it's the sight of ramparts fronted by cavalry. Others that it's a field of foot soldiers closing ranks. Still others claim that the heart thrills to no spectacle more than a fleet of warships churning the wine-dark waters white. I say, instead, the presence of what you love is best. This is easy enough to understand. Even the far-famed, milk-skinned Helen abandoned a worthy husband and without one thought for child or doting parents stole away in a deep sea ship with the destroyer of Troy. And now that you are gone, Anactoria, I know that power. No, deep down, I would rather see your bare feet on these flagstones, your face reflected in a looking-glass, than I would watch the man-killing chariots of Lydia, or the sun-enameled armor of the hoplites in battle. It is a, a, a elegant, an elegant little um, uh, trick that, that he plays... Um, with the, the phrase, the destroyer of Troy. Troy, of course, uh, appearing in the word destroyer, suggesting that 
uh, Paris carries even in his, his identity, his, um, the ultimate fate. There is something, uh, yeah, there is, a, there is a, a kind of an acceptance of doom, of fate in this poem. Despite her desire, there is a, there's definitely a feeling that Sappho has resigned herself to the loss of this woman. Maybe that's why there's, a, there's so much implied loss and death in, uh, in all of the imagery. But in any event, uh, it's a beautiful little poem. There are many other good translations, uh, and this may be only my favorite, but, uh, but that is what it is. So thank you uh, so much for listening. Um, I, uh, again, I want to encourage you to write in if you have thoughts if you have uh, complaints i'm sure there there are plenty after this episode uh you can write me at sleericketts at gmail.com s-l-e-e-r-i-c-k-e-t-s at gmail.com please also take a moment to um to uh, subscribe to the show on itunes on stitcher on spotify on a, a few other platforms as well uh rate the show review it maybe even uh, and, and just, uh, you know, give me a, give me a hello. There are a number of different, uh, uh, measures I have of the, you know, the, the, who's listening. They turn out to be wildly inconsistent with each other. So it's actually pretty hard to get a sense of, of who and how many, and, and if people are listening. So please do let me know, uh, if you like what you hear or don't, or, uh, whatever else is on your mind. I look forward to hearing from you, and I hope uh, to be speaking with you again very soon. Thanks.